Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullick. Rachel, I feel absolutely terrible right now, and uh, the last 24 hours have been really, really rough on me. How are you doing? Welcome to the Grumpy Ian Podcast. Okay. Yep. <laughs> um, I'm about... I'm not as grumpy. More like disappointed. Um, but hey, I mean, series is still 3-2, and... Hopefully the Raptors can win a championship because I'm sure if you haven't figured out by now, Ian and I are Raptors fans. Yep. And I'm going to try to keep the Raptors out of this podcast because I just, I I don't want to talk about it. I don't. That's where I'm at right now. So let's talk about something positive. Let's talk about the NHL draft, which is coming up in less than two weeks. It's going to be coming up very soon. And we have a lot of things that we want to talk about. So what's one of the first things you want to talk about? Um, okay, so we should probably talk about the purpose of the draft because I feel like a lot of people kind of lose sight of what it's there for. It's funny. It's one of those like simple philosophical questions you ask yourself. like, well, what's the purpose of it? Why, what do you want to accomplish with a pick in the first round? What do you want to accomplish with a pick in the third or fourth round? And they're very basic questions, but it can lead to some more interesting discussions when it comes to how to best take advantage of that asset. Because at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's an asset to your organization. And how do you maximize it? That's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. Exactly. So I think today we'll talk about the draft pick values and some different work that's been done, why there's so many trades at the draft, different draft strategies, different trends in the draft. Um, and then at the end, we'll touch on some of our favorite players in the draft. We won't go too in depth just cause um, this is more of a behind the scenes explaining stuff podcast. And I'm sure there's enough content out there that if you want to talk about drafting players, then you can go read up on pretty much any player that you want. So we'll just kind of name off some of our guys, maybe one or two things that we like about them at the end of the podcast. Sounds good to me. So the first topic that you wanted to touch on is the idea of drafting the best player available. I feel like it's something we always talk about at the draft. The Oh, don't worry about your guy. Don't worry about position. Just draft the best player available. And in the long run, that'll help you. I'm curious as to your thoughts on it because I'm starting to feel a bit differently as I start to see the value of wingers be much less than centers and we start to see how rare it is to find a top four right-handed defenseman in the NHL. I start to find myself leaning a bit the other way, not in terms of you need to draft for need every single time, but I feel like it's something you have to take into account a lot more than I used to previously think. Yeah, I think the whole concept of best player available especially in the first round when when you get into the later rounds and we'll talk about this um you can start picking the players that you want based on a skill but for me if you're in the first round and let's say you have the fifth overall pick and there's a player who's sitting there that's clearly better and you you take a guy who's rated 15th just because you want that guy like I don't know about that one um so for example like there is a top end defenseman in this draft but if this was an all forwards draft and you're picking at pick six and the first defenseman isn't rated until like pick 17, you probably want to look at either trading down or just taking a different player because the purpose of the draft is 
you're essentially you're stockpiling assets whether they play for your team or you use them in a trade there's a lot of teams that will draft players and and they'll use them as trade chips um because at the end of the day everything you're an asset right so you want to have the best possible assets because what's to say that you might have this really high end prospect and you use him in a trade to acquire a right-handed defenseman who's currently in the NHL and currently a star type of thing, right? So you want to have the best available that you can possibly have. And I always always used to think about it that way. I I always used to tell myself you draft the best possible player, and even if you have a bunch of really good defensemen, like for example Nashville, they drafted Sam Girard, and even though they didn't really need him, they had a billion great defensemen, he came up, did really well with them, and then he was part of a package to trade for a top six center in Kyle Turris, which is something they really needed. Now, Turris hasn't done as well with Nashville as they would have hoped, but I still love the idea behind the trade. They drafted the best player available, in their opinion, a defenseman, even though it didn't fill an organizational need. They have a billion great defensemen in that organization, even in their prospect pool, but they went, hey, we really like this kid. We think he's going to be a good player. He turned out to be a really good player, and then they used him as a trade chip to help fill a need for the organization. I definitely understand that logic. I'm just thinking of it in terms of, let's say you have two players who are very similar on your draft board. Maybe one guy is third on your draft board, the other guy's fourth, or the other guy's fifth. For example, in this draft, Bowen Byram is the number one rated defenseman pretty much unanimously by most people. But I think there's an argument to be made that he isn't the third best player in this draft. There's obviously the Jack Hughes, Capo Caco debate for one and two. Those are clearly the best two prospects in the draft. And then I would argue that Alex Turcott is number three. And then maybe a team thinks that Vasily Podkolzin is a better prospect than Bowen Byram. Podkolzin's a winger and Bowen Byram's a defenseman. Personally, if I have those two rated pretty close, I would rank the defenseman higher than the winger in that po- in that situation, and I'd go ahead and I'd draft Bowen Byram third overall. I think value-wise, there's an argument to be made that he's more valuable than a winger. Now, centers and defensemen, I would argue, are the two major positions in need, especially if that defenseman happens to be right-handed. But this is where it comes down to for me, is that even though I'm a big advocate of best player available, best player available, I feel like we're seeing when it comes to trade value and it comes to signing players to, to big contracts, we're seeing that wingers aren't as valuable as centers. And defensemen are much more valuable now than they've been in the past. It's really hard to acquire a really good puck-moving defenseman, especially if they happen to be right-handed. So I would tend to value defensemen, and especially right-handed defensemen, higher than wingers. A winger would really need to prove to me that they're significantly better than the defenseman in order to, to really move them up my draft board. Yeah, and like I could, I could absolutely see that being the way people think. And I think when scouts are making, when you're doing your first round, essentially, when you're making these rankings, I think all of that gets taken into consideration. Like, okay, when we're making our list, is this player better because he plays a more valuable position type of thing, right? Some teams that will value, let's say, a player's compete level. So this player has a five out of five in the compete. Like, he's hard to play against and he wins the battles in the corners. He'll block shots, like all those things. And for them, that'll be their determinant factor on whether or not they rate that player. Whether he's a better hockey player or not, if it's close, the player with a higher compete level will get the the higher ranking. So it wouldn't shock me if they did this positionally as well, whereas a player like Bowen Byram, and he does play the more valuable position than a winger. And so that's probably taken into consideration. But I think once the lists are made... All of that has been taken into consideration, but I've heard that Colorado, even if Byram's available, 
isn't going to take him. And that's sort of where I'm like, he's the best player available and Colorado could use him as a trade chip. So where is Colorado picking in the draft? Just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Uh, they're picking fourth. Okay, so I'm not even sure if Byron will be available at that point. But if he is, so let's say Jack Hughes, Capocacco go 1-2. Let's say Alex Turcott goes 3 for fun because now Byram's available. You can pick Bowen Byram. You can pick a, a center like Dylan Cousins, Kirby Dak, someone else is going to be available. You could, you could go for a winger, someone like a, you know, a Cole Caulfield or a Bobby Brink, but I feel like those guys will be available a few picks later. So, yeah, it's a real tough one. It's, it's interesting to hear that they wouldn't look into drafting Byram because I really like him as a prospect, but maybe they feel that someone like Trevor Zegras is a better prospect. Even though they're not a defenseman, they're project to be a very good center and they think that they're going to be a top six center and maybe that has more value to them than a than a true blue chip defenseman I don't know it's, it's a tough one right and it's that's what it's all sub, uh, subjectivity right like you aren't like one scout's opinion of who's better is different from another's and therefore like one team's opinion there are some teams who probably have Cole Caulfield rated top seven in there and then there he's probably not in some teams top 15 which I mean, you can have your own opinion on that one, but that's sort of what I'm getting at, where Bowen Byram could be number three on a lot of lists, but he could also be number six or seven on some other lists, right? So it, it depends on who's picking and where. But if I'm Colorado, let's say I have the fourth pick, but I also have a pick in the mid-round because I have my own pick, that fourth overall pick probably nets you a bona fide top forward right now. So you could look at trading that if you don't necessarily think that the player that you want is as valuable to you or, or your organization as player who's already in the NHL, that's when you could start to see either they trade back or they trade for a player who's already in the NHL. But for me, it's all about asset management. Yeah, it's funny. Like this would be a different discussion, but I feel like it would be really interesting to see Colorado trade that pick for a legitimate star player because I feel like it might make sense for them. They have tons of cap space. Maybe another team is looking to kind of kickstart their rebuild and doesn't feel like holding on to a star player for the next couple of years because they don't feel they're going to be competing. So, that might be the best avenue for them. But again, that that's it, it comes down to taking advantage of the asset. For most teams, you're picking in the top 5, you're not in a position where you're ready to contend. So, you're you're taking the next six, seven, eight years of a young player and watching them develop. And so moving to something like a draft pick value. So what is that pick worth to the Avalanche, right? So Michael Shuckers did this terrific piece on draft pick values and Sean Tierney actually made a viz recently. He's at Charting Hockey on Twitter so that you can easily understand it. And essentially the value drops significantly and Blue Bullet has a chart that shows essentially it drops exponentially over the course of the first round. So like picks one to six are pretty valuable picks seven to 25 ish are they're still valuable, but definitely not as valuable. And then once you get past 25, they're pretty much the same. And it's funny because anything past the third round, they have essentially the same value in terms of contributing to an NHL lineup. So this is an interesting discussion in itself because I've I've discussed this on Twitter before and then some people bring up some really good points about the draft pick values. And it's the fact that when we look at these draft pick values historically, let's say over the last 10 years, that they're looking at the rate at which we, we pick players, you know, the way our ability to assess players over the last 10 years. 
But our ability to forecast future success, I think you can make a good argument that it's really improved, especially in the last couple of years. For example, a player like Quinn Hughes, a five foot nine defenseman, 10 years ago, he'd never be drafted in the top 10. Hell, he probably wouldn't be drafted in the first round. Yet we see a team like Vancouver pick him seventh overall, and I would argue that he probably should have gone, you know, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth. He probably shouldn't have gone that far. I would say Vancouver was shocked to see that he fell to seven and probably just sprinted up to the stage like, yes, we're taking him. Thank you. Goodbye. But my point is more the fact that a player like Quinn Hughes 10, 15 years ago doesn't even go in the first round. Yet we've evolved to the point where I feel like we're accurately assessing these players. We're not perfect. The market's nowhere near perfect right now, but I don't think it's as inefficient as it was 10 years ago. And what I mean by that is at pick 25 or at pick 30 or at pick 35, I think we're a bit better able to assess those players now than we were 10 or 15 years ago. Pick 40, pick 50. Maybe we're better able to assess a second-round pick than we were a few years ago. So basically, when you look at these draft pick values, we're, we're seeing that teams have been pretty good at assessing the first 15 or 20 players in a draft, maybe 25 players in a draft. And then after that, it's a total crapshoot because teams aren't really good at assessing players' talent. The argument online by some people is that we're much better now at assessing players in the 30s and the 40s and the 60s and the second, third round than we were 10 years ago. So how meaningful are draft pick values from 10 years ago if scouting as a whole has improved? Maybe that's not necessarily an accurate reflection of the scouts' ability today. It was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it's perfectly accurate of what the market was. But since the market has changed, are we maybe looking at a second round pick having more value today than it would have had 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think scouting's definitely gotten better. And I think there's been tools like um, Cam Lawrence and Josh Weisbach have their prospect predictor and um, how they're going to translate. But I also think that teams really focus on their first round pick and then they have their list. But at the end of the day, once you get into the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh rounds, it's more of okay, what's this guy's separating skill? Can we develop him to a point where he's contributing or he's an asset that we can use? After the fourth round, I feel like teams are just happy with the fact that you're an NHL player. Even if you're like a fourth liner, that's that's a hit for most teams. Okay, so I did a study. If you're in the top three picks, it takes you an average of, it's like 0.75 seasons to crack the NHL like on a regular basis. So obviously like your first overall pick is in the NHL the very next year. Um, a lot of times, so is the second overall pick. And then once you get past pick five, um, basically pick five to pick, I want to say pick nine, it's about a year and a half development. And then once you pick 10 and beyond, you're looking at over two seasons before the player you picked is playing a meaningful role in your lineup, which means he's stuck in your lineup and he's playing minutes not two minutes or five minutes a night. Like, he's actually And on a consistent basis, he's not in and out of the lineup playing, like, 30 games in a regular season. You're taking a player at 10th or, let's say, 12th overall, right? Who you're probably not seeing for two seasons. Especially if they're a defenseman, those players, especially when they're taken in the mid to late first round or even second round, they tend to take two, three, at least three years to develop. I'd say if if we're going second round and beyond, we're usually looking at three-plus years. Exactly. And you have some players that take longer than that because you have some players who go to college and they don't come out till three years and then they've probably got to play a year in the AHL. So there's four years like it's it's a long process. And that's why I think that 
the pick value charts still have some meaning because the odds that a player you draft third or fourth or fifth overall isn't playing in four years, like unless that player gets a catastrophic injury, you shouldn't be screwing up your top five picks. And so that's why I think that those picks have significantly more value because they're essentially guaranteed to play meaningful NHL games. And that makes a lot of sense. When you're looking for a, a legitimate rebuild, you're looking for that blue chip prospect, you want to like pick a guy to build your franchise around, those guys usually come in the top five and realistically top three. Uh, there was some great research done by, I want to make sure I pronounce it right, is it Chase McCollum on Twitter, CM Hockey uh, 66 does a lot of really great work, and he found that basically if you're looking for a legitimate franchise player, those guys pretty much go in the top three. And then if you look at the the chart, it's like first overall pick almost always happens. Second overall pick usually happens. Third overall pick pretty often happens. And then from number four, five, six, and beyond, like seven, eight, nine, it's pretty rare. I mean, there are the cases where you get an Elias Pettersson later in the draft. There are cases where Eric Carlson goes 15th overall. Posternock. Yeah, they're not nearly as common as players going in the top three. Players in the top three very often become those kind of players. So if you're looking for a player who's going to be like a franchise kind of player, you don't need a top three pick, but that's the kind of pick you probably want. Probabilistically speaking, that's the best way to get those kind of players. So I think that's why uh, for Colorado, it's a shame that they didn't get a top three pick this year because obviously the top two are phenomenal this year. I think Alex Turcott would have been a great consolation prize at number three. Maybe they get a Bowen Byram. Maybe maybe the team picks Bowen Byram third overall, and then they get an Alex Turcott. But again, if you if you don't have a top three pick in this day and age, it's really hard to get that kind of franchise player. You might end up with a really good second liner. You might end up with a really good number two or number three defenseman. But the odds indicate that if you want that kind of franchise player, it, it usually comes in the top three. So, and that kind of goes to one of the big things that happens at the draft, which is trades, right? Team's value, maybe the player that they want is gone. Maybe the player, a player that's available, a team who's not drafting quite at that spot, didn't think would be available and wants to trade up. There's a lot of trades that happen at the draft, and it has a lot to do with what that pick is valued at by a certain team. So you'll see teams trade picks all the time. And the key thing here, and we got asked the question about why won't teams trade their first round picks in advance but they'll trade them at the draft well it's not a x round pick at the draft it's a number at that point because once the stanley cup's awarded every pick is just a number because you know exactly where you're picking so during the season it's a first round pick but by the time the season's done it could be the 29th overall pick that's very different from the 10th overall pick right so it just becomes a number at that point. I mean, you do have an idea of where you are in the standings. It's not like you have no clue, but you're right. There's a more there's more of a range of outcomes with the uncertainty of where you're picking. Right, and and when you look at things like the draft pick value chart, in the later rounds, two-fifths has more value than one fourth-round pick, just based on how those even out. So if you want two shots at players as opposed to just one, that's a way that you can do that. And because the rankings past like the top 40 or 50 are extremely different for each team because each team values different skills at different levels and they view players differently, you could have a team rank a player 110th, but that player could not even be ranked on another team's and it, he could be ranked 
65th on another team's. Yeah, once you get into like the second round, really, that's when the discrepancy really starts. I feel like most people have their top 15, top 20 players. Not exactly the same, but more or less, there's a lot of consistency with it. Once you get into that second, third, fourth, fifth round, everybody has a completely different list, and there might be a pick that seems to come way out of left field for one team, but you know, three other teams had that guy in their top 60. So there's a lot of variance the later you get into the draft. Exactly, and that's why I think when it comes to acquiring picks, it's better to stockpile assets because let's say there's a 10% chance that a fourth round pick makes it, and there's a 7% chance that a fifth-round pick makes it, just based on math, right? Well, if I have the opportunity to trade one-fourth for two-fifths, I add seven plus seven, that's 14%. Well, to me, now, that's 4% better chance, right? You, The more shots you have at drafting players, the more shots you have of a player making your team, of an asset turning out positively that you can use potentially in a trade. There's a lot of things you can do, and that's why I think you see a lot of trades at the draft because maybe you're in the fourth round and a player that you had ranked in the third round is still available and you really want him because you don't think he should even be there. Well, maybe you trade your two-fifths for that fourth-round pick and you take that player that you had it rate in the third round. The hard part is that if every team thought that way, you know, they're not all going to be right. So how confident can you be that you're, you're, you're beating the market every single time? Because there's a lot of interesting work, and whether it's the NFL draft or the MLB draft or, or really any kind of draft when it comes to sports, is that if you think you can consistently beat the market, in the long run, you're probably going to be wrong. In the short term, you you might be really smart and know that this player is good and other teams might not realize it, but if every single team in the NHL thought that they were smarter than the market, they'd obviously, half of them would be wrong, you know? So that's the tough part. Right, and I think it, it goes back to how teams rank different players differently. So let's say you have a player that by some people's accounts should go in the fourth round and by other people's accounts should go in the sixth round. Well, if you're a team and you're kind of mid-fifth round and this player is still on the board, well, do you jump up and take them or do you wait? It's all about how teams have these players ranked. And that's why I think you see so many trades because so many teams have so many different players ranked in so many different places that eventually it's kind of just corrects itself because different teams are viewing different players differently at that point. And then another thing that we have to talk about is it's not just the moving of draft picks. You see players moved at the draft, right? Yeah. Like if a player is rumored to be in a trade during the off season and we're hearing about it even throughout the playoffs, a lot of the times we'll see those blockbuster trades happen at the draft. I mean, that's when Dougie Hamilton was traded, if I recall correctly. Multiple times, really. <laughs> um, yeah, multiple times. Uh, like the Ryan Kessler trade, uh, the big one at the time, you know, that one happened at the draft. A lot of huge trades happen at the draft. Is that because Corey you just. The Snyder get... tra- uh, trade happened at the draft. I-, I think the Phil Kessel one happened a-, a few days after the draft, if I'm not mistaken. So Yeah, it happened July 1st. Okay. I was at a Blue Jay game when it happened. Is that just because you have so many GMs? in the same room with one another and it leads to more discussion or or why is it that so many trades happen at the draft but not before or not after i think there's a couple reasons so we just covered why so many picks are traded so now we'll move to players i think a lot of it is every gm is in 
the same room. So they're all talking. They all have multiple conversations going at once. They could talk to each other. So there's that. But it's easier to trade players going into the offseason because a lot of teams, I think every team, basically has their postseason meetings. So that's where they talk about free agency targets. That's where they talk about trade targets. That's where they talk about what type of team they want to have, what changes they need to make based on the season before. So they've already had these meetings going in to the draft. So they know what they need, what they want, what they want to get rid of off their own team. And when you have that idea and you have all the GMs in the same room, it's a lot easier to cultivate a trade. Plus, a lot of the times you have all your scouts there so you can ask opinions immediately as opposed to having to say, oh, let me call like my scout that's based in Dallas to see what he thinks of a player who plays for the Stars type of thing. And then you also have the cap flexibility in the summer. That was the big thing I was going to bring up, is the fact that you can go 10% over the salary cap in the offseason up until October when the season starts, whereas during the season, you obviously can't. So in the regular season, you know, you have to be under the actual salary cap. So when next season starts, you have to be under $83 million. If you're over that, then you can't be. That's not how the league works, unless you have LTIR, and that's another discussion for another day. But to put it simplistically, you need to be under $83 million when the season starts on October 4th or whatever the date is. In the offseason, you can be 10% above that. So you can be 91.3 million is your cap for the offseason. And then you have a few months to figure it out. So let's say you go a couple million dollars over the $83 million salary cap, you know, maybe an offer sheet comes. Oh my God, the things that always happen in the offseason. You can actually just sign that player to that deal and then look to trade someone else in the next couple months. You have a lot more flexibility. Let's say you're looking to acquire a really good player like a Ryan O'Reilly. You can trade for that player, even though he has a massive salary, and then look to get rid of other salaries throughout the course of the offseason. So I think that's why we see more star players traded during the offseason as opposed to midseason, because midseason it's hard to take on you know, a six, seven, eight million dollar commitment. Whereas in the offseason, it's extremely easy to do that because hell, you can go eight million dollars over the salary cap this offseason. So it makes it a lot easier. It's a lot easier to take someone off your team at the draft because then you have the whole summer to figure out, okay, this is my plan. This is how I'm going to replace. Um, this is what I'm trying to do. Whereas if you're doing it in season, could you imagine taking a star player off your team midseason unless it's at the trade deadline and you know it's going to happen? Like, your team instantly is handicapped. Unless that's what they're trying to do, which is usually the case. You know, Jake Muzzin, the, the Kings were trying to tank at that point. Exactly. And so that's a sort of draft trend. But now we'll look at um, what are some of the trends when it comes to what type of player is being drafted, um, are there differences in height, weight? Like, how have things changed over the past, let's say, 15 years in terms of the types of players being drafted back then to being drafted now? How we look at things, um, how we evaluate players, like, what are you sort of seeing? Well, I think I accidentally brought it up earlier with Quinn Hughes is the fact that we're starting to value skating and puck moving ability from defensemen significantly more than size and strength. You know, 15 years ago, I mean, less than that, t teams were looking for the Luke Shen types, you know, the, the big bodied Darian Hatcher, Scott Hannon defensive defenseman types. Unfortunately, those are almost extinct in the NHL today. If, if you're not able to skate and move the puck, it's very hard for you to have value in the NHL. And if you do, you're probably like a number five or number six defenseman. There aren't too many number one or top pairing defensemen 
who are complete defensive specialists who can't complete a breakout pass. There's really Nicholas Jalmerson, and then are there really any others? It's very difficult because in the modern game, transition's the name of the game. You need to have quick foot speed. You need to be able to pivot out of your defensive zone, make the first four check or miss, and then make the quick breakout pass out of your zone. You don't need to be six foot four to do that. You can be five nine. You can be five ten. Bowen Byram isn't that big. He's the the number one defenseman in this draft class. He's listed at six foot tall, 194 pounds. So like he's not small, but he's obviously not a big, tall guy. Bowen Byram doesn't go in the top five of a draft 10 years ago. At least I don't think he does. I think no that chance. we're valuing taller, bigger, stronger defensemen. Whereas today, it's more about your quickness. It's more about your skill. It's more about your puck moving ability. I think that's the biggest thing I've seen. We're starting to see a trend towards smaller players getting drafted a bit higher. But then again, when Alex Dabrinkat and Sam Girard go in the second round a couple of years ago, it's very difficult for me to confidently say that. But I feel like we're going to see Cole Caulfield go in the top 10 this year, and this will start to be a trend towards the the smaller, super-skilled offensive forwards going much earlier than they did in the past. I feel like that's the name of the game these days. We're starting to see more skilled players being drafted higher, or at least being played higher in the NHL lineups. You know, Nikita Kucherov's going to win the MVP this year. He was a 5'10 dude who was drafted in the second round because he was Russian. I, I don't think we're going to see those same biases as we did 10 years ago. So that's the big thing for me. Namita, I want to say NN Stats on Twitter. I think it's Namita. Namita, Namita. I am yeah. so sorry to her. Um, She had a couple charts and she did some work um, that she posted. And I read it. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is damn terrific. She essentially broke down the trends from, I want to say 2005's draft to now, every single year, players drafted by height, weight, height and weight, and by their position as well. So how tall are the defensemen? How tall are the forwards? How tall are the goalies? How much do they weigh? And where, like, where are they being drafted? What is the average height of the draft? And she came up with some really cool results. So um, to no one's surprise, skaters are smaller these days because the game is going the speed and skill route with an especially pronounced decrease in weight. So that I believe the medical thing is one inch is equal to four pounds essentially of weight. But from 2005 to 2018's draft, the players that are being drafted are 15 pounds lighter in 2018 than they were in 2005. That's a huge difference. And they're about an inch shorter. So they're much lighter. They're much lighter. They're a bit shorter. But the big thing is that they're a lot lighter than they were uh, 15 years ago. Exactly. So you're not seeing, um, I hate to bring this up, but the Tyler Biggs, Freddie Gauthier, um, Logan Brown, who actually I think will be pretty good. Um, you're not seeing that type of heavy hockey You just player. feel like they're overvalued because of their size. Because it's not as valuable in the modern game. Remember when the Rangers, I think, took Dylan McElrath in like the Ooh. top 15 or something like that? Yeah. Like, you don't see that How about that Jared anymore. Cowan? Jared Cowan went in the top 10, didn't he? Yes, he did. So you're just, you're not seeing that anymore. You're seeing more of the Quinn Hughes, the smaller type defenseman Noah Dobson he's big but he's more of like a slider build I was gonna say you're talking about small dudes he's 6'4 that that's a that's a 6'4 guy who can skate I feel like that's different but that there's a difference Dylan McElrath was like 6'5 and could not skate but he was more of a Dan Girardi type exactly whereas to Noah Dobson is big but he has that fleet of foot he absolutely can skate if you're a 6'4 defenseman who can skate and move the puck you should probably be going in the top 10 
Yeah. Um, so you're seeing the trend upwards in the past few years in terms of the way that we're drafting for skill, right? So generally speaking, the speedy, skilled players are a little bit smaller. They weigh a little less. Think about Braden Point, Mitch Marner, Johnny Goudreau. The smaller guys, they're... they're Sebastian Ajo. They're a little bit slighter. Um, and one big thing you want to say is Alex DeBrincat was really never even talked about for a top 15 pick. He was always in the 20s and he ended up going the second round. I will be shocked if Cole Caulfield makes it past 16 or 15 sorry I will be I'll be shocked if he makes it into the second half of the first round um I think there are a lot of teams that really value scoring and no matter how big or small so that tells me that we're kind of trending in the right direction when you're seeing guys like Cole Caulfield getting attention for a top 10 pick because we did not see that with Debrinkat or Gerard a few years ago and I think the other interesting thing that came out of that research is that all these positions, you know, forwards, defense, or whether it's a center, a winger, a left-handed defenseman, right-handed defenseman, the trend is going smaller, like lighter, and also shorter. Whereas the trends with goalies is we're getting taller. And I think that makes a lot of sense because I think we're seeing in the NHL, as much as we want to say, you know, oh, size doesn't matter, it's how you use it. You know, that's, you know, every, every important thing in life. When it comes to goaltender size... Size matters, man. Size, it's it. you take up more of the net, it's easier for you to get to a puck. And that's why if you look at the top 10 goalies over the last few years, it's very hard to find one who's under six foot three. There's the odd one here and there. But on the balance of probabilities, you have a much better chance of making it as an NHL goalie if you're 6'3 or taller. So I think it makes sense that we're starting to see the trend that way because you it, it, it just makes sense when you think about it. You take up more of the net. If you can be 6'3 and athletic, that's better than being six feet tall and athletic. You have three extra inches to take away space on shots. So. I'd almost be interested to see when it comes to goaltending, um, limb measurements, right? So you might not have to be, let's say you're 6'2 or six feet tall, but your legs and arms are extremely long. Let's say you have the limbs of Pekka Rinne, who's 6'6. Well, then effectively... You could be 6'4", 6'5", when it comes to value because you've got the limbs, right? I would wonder with goaltending if a guy like Vasilevsky, who is tall but he's not Pekka tall, if he's got longer limbs proportionate to the rest of his body. You know what I mean? This is huge in the NBA. Wingspan is the number one thing you hear on NBA draft night. It's like, oh man, this guy, his length and his athleticism, it's huge. And when we're looking at the heights of NBA players, we're not as concerned with them anymore as much as we are with the wingspan. For example, Kawhi Leonard is six foot seven, but his arms are seven foot three wide. So he can take up multiple a lot of space. He can defend really well. He can guard multiple positions. And his hands are like the size of someone who's like eight feet tall. That's another issue. His hands are like Shaquille O'Neal size. But hockey players, or at least goaltenders, it's a similar concept. If you have a small torso and extremely long legs, guess what? Your pads are going to be bigger, and you're going to be able to take up more space in the butterfly. If you have long limbs, you can stretch out and make that glove save that maybe a, a goalie with a shorter wingspan wasn't going to make. So I agree with you. I think if we, if we start to see more freaks... When it comes to goaltenders, like wingspan matters. And I think for defensemen, it's a big thing too. If you have a longer wingspan, you're going to be able to control your gaps better because you're going to be able to take away more space at the blue line. I always find it surprising how heights, heights and weights are always listed for players, but we don't see wingspan listed. Wing, wingspan's incredibly important 
as as an athlete if you're allowed to use your arms. In soccer, it doesn't matter because you can't use your hands. But in basketball, you know, being able to take away space with your hands is huge. In hockey, if you can take away space with your long stick as a defenseman and your reach, that matters as a goaltender. Stretching out, making the save, it really matters. So I'd love to see wingspan listed more often for these players because I think it's a huge kind of under-the-radar inefficiency that we're not taking advantage of. Right, and there's definitely some players that... uh we like in the draft that maybe are not high enough on on some teams' rankings or some people's rankings for our liking, so I'll let you start. Uh, Who are a couple that that you really like? Bobby Brink's the big one for me. Uh, We were talking about, you know, the smaller, super skilled, Mitch Marner, Sebastian Ajo, uh, Braden Point-type players, the guys who are small, but they're extremely skilled, they're, they're fast skaters, and they produced at a ridiculous level in junior. That's Bobby Brink. He's what, five foot nine, a buck sixty maybe, but he had the best production in the USHL. And that includes Jack Hughes. That includes Alex Turcott. He was incredible. He basically was a one man team in the USHL, produced at an absurd level. And most years that gets you drafted in the top five or at least the top 10. But because he's a winger and because he's smaller, I see him pretty late in the teens or in the 20s in some people's draft rankings. For me, yeah, he projects to be a first-line scorer. I'm not sure if he's going to be a center or a wing, probably a winger based on his size. But to me, if, if you're an elite talent and you're an elite point producer, you should get drafted very high. Right, and I just want to like say we're not going to go horribly in-depth on these guys because there's a lot of draft stuff out there. Like Corey Pronman's got stuff. Wheeler's got stuff. Um, there's the hockey news. There's hockey prospectus. Like, if you want to go read up on any of the players that we mentioned please go do so because there are people who have been out there watching them all season and probably for a couple of years now that will have full analysis. Quick shout out, Cam Robinson's one of my favorites. Love his stuff at Dauber Prospects. Um, Next Gen Hockey is something cool that Jeremy Davis and Ryan Beach have kind of put out now. They used to do all their awesome work at Canucks Army with the really cool charts and everything, but now they're starting this new subscriber-based website and they got a lot of cool information there. So just a quick shout out there. But yeah, we're not going to go hyper in depth on like 20 different players. We'll save that for super nerdy podcasts. Like, I don't know, the Leafs Geeks podcast, you know, just <laughs> name off some other ones that uh, you like. All right. Without going into crazy big detail, I'll just give you like a brief uh, description. Albin, it's pr- it's spelled G-R-E-W-E. Most people would say Gru, but it's Albin Grieve, apparently, the, the Swedish pronunciation. Let me know how I did on that. Albin Grieve. Um, my, my Swedish listeners, uh, did really, really well in the Swedish Junior League, has a projectable game to the next level. I know we talked about in our former podcast that points aren't everything. If you're not projected to be, you know, a first-line, uh, number-one power play kind of guy, you need to be doing other things at 5-on-5 five five to generate value, and I think Albin Grieve is an excellent example of that. I think he wins a lot of puck battles, like he's good defensively. I bet you he ends up on the penalty kill, and he probably can play some second-unit power play if everything goes right for him. Again, maybe everything doesn't go right for him, but if you can produce elite uh, at an elite rate in the Swedish Junior League, that indicates that you have a high rate of success at the next level. Uh, Anthony Honk is an interesting one because I think that if he was born a few days later and was drafted last year, he probably would have gone in the top 15 or top 20. He had an incredible year last year. Struggled this year. He's a right-handed puck-moving defenseman, much like his brother Julius Honka, but... I, th- I think I'm a bigger fan of Anthony's Honka's game. I think he's a slippery skater. I think he's a zone exit machine. 
And in the day and age where puck moving ability is everything, I think Anthony Honka is exactly that. And I'd love to have him on my team. Maybe you don't draft him in the top 10 or top 15, but if I have a pick in the late teens and Anthony Honka is still on the board, I'd love to draft him as my puck moving right-handed defenseman. Uh, those are a couple there. Do you have any guys you want to bring up? Um, there's a couple. So we've talked about Cole Caulfield. Um, I love him, and that's really all I'm going to say on that one. 72 goals in 64 games. I mean, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Um, I like Alex Turcotte. He had a pretty um, injury-riddled year, but I just I really like his game. He's so creative. He's really well-rounded. He's super competitive on the puck, and I'm not talking about he hits people. I'm talking about when this guy has the puck, he possesses the puck long enough where he can make the next play, and the next play is generally a scoring chance for whoever is on the ice with him. So I really like that about him. I think um, Cam York uh, has potential to be a number one defenseman who can run the power play, play on the PK. He was the puck-moving defenseman for the U.S. Uh, development squad, right? Exactly, yeah. He's he's had a terrific year. Um, but one other guy on the U.S. team that I really liked is Dominique Fensori. He's a really small guy, but... I really liked how he plays. I like how he skates. I like how he moves the puck. I like his gap control, especially as a smaller guy. I thought he did a really good job handling some of the bigger players. And I think that as his game develops, he'll get better defensively. He'll get better offensively. Did he c- come to the draft combine for his heights and weights? Because I know that's a big thing. He was listed at five foot seven this year. I'm not sure what he measured in at, but that's going to be a big one where it's like, ooh, we know you can be five foot nine as a defenseman and have success, but can you be five foot seven or five foot eight? I'd love to see Fensore get drafted in, I don't know, the second round and then see a team develop him because, like you said, puck moving, speedy defenseman who can control their gaps in transition and get the play going in the right direction. If you're five foot eight and you can make that happen, like Jared Spurgeon, you're going to be an effective player. Dominic Fensori is five foot seven, 155 pounds, but he has all those skills that translate. If he puts on a bit of muscle, can he be someone who has a lot of value in the modern game? I, I think that's an interesting question. I, I like the idea of picking him. And hey, he might not be done growing, so maybe he's 5'9 when this is all said and done. I, someone told me that when you're looking at these uh, 17 year olds' heights, None of them are going to get any smaller, but there's a good chance that some of them get a, get a bit bigger. So some some other ones that I like that don't get a lot of coverage, um, and there's four. There's Niels Hoaglander. Oh, I love him. A left winger. This guy might have the best hands in the draft. Like, he literally is so creative, and I'm not talking about he wastes time because he likes to stick handle with a puck. No, he makes plays at full speed in stride and like he doesn't have the breakaway speed but if he needs to get around you he's gonna get around you and he'll make plays to set guys up so that's one guy I like pa- Patrick Puistola the Finn um I really like him I think that he's got a good package of of tools um he's highly competitive on the puck in the same way that Turcotte is He's got a good shot, but it's not like a sniper shot. But what I really like is he's super creative. So he can be creative and create space for himself. He can create opportunities for his teammates. He's just very cerebral player. And I think that with the way the game's going, with the high-end skill, the high-end speed, you have to be able to think the game and be creative. And Puisil is a, a really good example of that. So I think... Um, it wouldn't shock me if he went sort of later in the first round or very high in the second round. Yeah, and he produced really well in the Finnish AHL. It's called the Mestis. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But again, if you can produce well in a pro league, even if it's not necessarily the highest level pro league, I mean, like you see uh, what Elias Pettersson did in the Osvenskin, which is the second tier Swedish league. 
How's he doing in the NHL? Yeah, he's doing pretty well. I don't think Pistol has the same kind of talent, but again, if you can produce well in a pro league, that is a very good sign of future success. So maybe Puistola is not going to be a first-line kind of player, but if you can be a middle six scorer and give you NHL value late in the first round, hey, that's valuable. Right, and then two uh, Swedish defensemen that I like are Tobias Bjornfoot and Albert Johansson. Um, I thought they were really good at the U18s, um, and they've kind of been going upwards, like trending upwards throughout the season. I know Corey Pronman has written about them. There's there's a couple of really good articles on both of them, and I think that they could potentially be really cool um, players to kind of follow just based on who gets them for their development and uh, potentially playing in the NHL. So those are sort of my players. And Can I throw in another one since you brought up the Swedish puck-moving defenseman? Obviously. We my love bo- our Swedish puck-moving defenseman on this podcast. My boy Victor Soderstrom. Oh, yes. He's going top 15, though. I think he's the best right-handed defenseman in this draft class. And again, that has a lot of value to me. And this is the hard part where it's like, well, yeah, maybe there's a winger who I think is a better winger than Victor Soderstrom is a right-handed defenseman. But I think that right-handed defensemen are so much more valuable than wingers that I I basically put Victor Soderstrom ahead of almost every winger in this draft class, except for maybe a couple. Obviously, Capo Caco. He might not even be a winger. He might play center at the next level, but he's such a dominant player that he basically has the same impact as a center. Maybe I put someone like Bobby Brink ahead of him. I think I put Cole Caulfield ahead of Victor Soderstrom, but he's just so good of a puck mover. He's a speedy guy. And again, I think there's a good argument to be made that he's the best right-handed defenseman in this draft class. We got a couple of interesting questions for the mailbag, and they're both draft-related, which is kind of why we're going to do that. So... Um, how will Peyton Krebs draft ranking be affected by his injury? And how often is it that a top 10 ranked players injured either like in his draft season or before the draft? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. Uh, what is the injury? Just so everyone's clear. It's an Achilles tendon injury. So he had surgery, but it's not ruptured. So he should be good by October or November of this upcoming season. So it's not, is it Kevin Durant bad? (laughs) <laughs> oh, that one's... I don't know how bad Kevin's is, but I know that Peyton Krebs' injury, they said he should be back October, November time frame. Sorry, I had to throw that out there. But yeah, top 10 players rarely get hurt during your draft year because, again, it, it usually to assert yourself as a top 10 worthy player, you need to have a, a full season or at least a partial season where you prove your value. How often does it really happen in the past? Morgan Riley comes to mind. Yeah, I think actually there were two. So the 2012 draft, Riley went fifth and Galchenyuk went third. And both of them barely played in their draft seasons. But I think with Krebs, it's a little different because he played the whole year and he got hurt in off-season training. But I would say that it impacts him even less because scouts know what they're getting because he did play that full year, right? So I don't really think it will impact it. He's in the 6 to 12 range for me. So if he falls to 14, then that's not really a big thing. But the thing is, it's just such a cluster of players in that 6 to 12 range that really it could go any direction. Yeah, and if you slip back to like 14, that doesn't necessarily mean that you were, you know, undervalued by certain GMs. It just means there are so many good players in that range and different teams might value different things. So I don't know. I could see Peyton Krebs going sixth overall. I could see him going 14th or 15th. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but I don't think the injury is going to push him back into like, you know, the second half of the first round, like maybe some people are suspecting. 
Oh, I don't think so at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Galchenyuk and Riley both missed, I would say, like 80% of their seasons with knee injuries. I know- Didn't Riley play like five games or something like that? Yeah, and then he attempted to play in the playoffs, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, he had reconstructive knee surgery in his draft year. And anyone who's had reconstructive knee surgery, let me tell you, it is not that fun. Um, and to come back and try and play hockey, I mean, holy moly, kudos to him. Because that's, when you're coming back in, in the playoffs to play, like, that's pretty difficult. And Galchenyuk was playing with Yakupov his draft year. And I, I believe it was his knee. Um, for some reason, my brain is telling me it may have been his shoulder, but I'm pretty sure it was his knee. And he missed a bunch, but that didn't stop Montreal from taking him at three. How much does the junior organization a player plays for impact their development? So if two players are right, so if two players are reasonably equal, but one plays for a better development team, let's say like London, who would you take? Or I think another way of looking at that is, I mean, let's say he's on a London team, but he's so far behind some other players in the lineup because of how stacked that London team is. He doesn't get a chance to show himself off. Like maybe an Andreas Athanasio when he was in his draft year, or Cliff Pooh is another great example of a guy who had to play on the third line because that team was just so stacked when, when Mitch Marner. Remember and when Mitch and Marner's company. dad was complaining about Mitch Marner's ice time in his draft year? Because I do. And I was like, it's kind of super irrelevant because he's going to go in the top five. Also, anyways. wasn't he getting like 25 minutes a night as a winger? I mean, uh, another conversation for another day. But anyway, like I would say first off, just to qualify this before we get into like junior teams, I would take a CHL player over an NCAA player because what I've learned is you can't really do development on ice sessions with the players in the NCAA, but you can just show up if you schedule it. Let's say your player plays in um, Kingston. Saginaw. In Saginaw. <laughs> wow, good job, Ian. As a team, if you have the development staff, you can show up and do on-ice sessions with your player who's playing there. In the NCAA, you can't really do that. So you're not really in control of your player's development. But if you don't have a development staff and you don't want to invest in development for whatever reason, then sure, draft NCAA players because they'll do the developing for you because you're... I don't know if you're not allowed to be on the ice, but you're basically... You're not on the ice with your college players. I don't know. I still feel like teams who drafted like... Zach Wierenski or Quinn Hughes or Jack Eichel, like, I don't know, Brady Kachuk did a lot better than a lot of scouts. You know, a lot of the, the online community didn't think Brady Kachuk was going to do that well, and he looks like a legitimate first Yeah, but he winner, didn't so. go back to school after he was drafted. I'm talking about you're drafting a player that's going to college and is likely going to be in college for two to three years. So, so we're talking more guys like after pick 15, like late first round, second, third, and beyond. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking those kind of players. So a guy like Jack McBain, let's say, the Minnesota draft pick. Um, Some of the U.S. development players who are going to go later in the draft. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Judd Caulfield um, or uh, who is, what's his name? Uh, Johnny Farinacci. Players like that. So if you want to do the development as a team where you want to have on-ice sessions, you want to be in control of the development, I would say you stay away from the NCAA, guys. Um, But that's just that. Um, to answer the question though, like what if a guy comes from a really like not great program, but is such a dominant player in junior, you want to draft him? How much should that weigh into how you evaluate the player? So the NHL team basically controls where the player plays. So if it's in the CHL, 
Um, what a lot of people don't know is the GMs and the assistant GMs are heavily involved. So a lot of times you'll see a drafted player who's playing in the CHL get traded to another team. And if you think that the team that their rights belong to or the team that they belong to isn't involved, oh my god. They basically control where this guy goes. So if they say, if a team, um, when Niagara wanted to trade for Robertson, they had to make, they had to be on good terms with, I want to say Dallas. Is it Dallas? I think it was Dallas. Right. So they had to be, Dallas had to basically give the stamp of approval. Or let's say you're, like you said earlier, um, a player they he's been drafted but he's playing on a team that um isn't known for development and is a complete disaster a team can go uh you're gonna trade our player and they can dictate where you're training them so if they're playing in a city that's just a damn near disaster they can say okay you're trading them and they'll help facilitate the trade so what they'll do is they'll approach like a london a guelph a kitchener um or a halifax or rune naranda um a Portland or um, a Spokane and they'll say we'd like our player to come to your team because obviously we have a good relationship with you we know we're going to be able to do work can you facilitate a trade and a lot of times these are for really good players so the team that would be acquiring him is not going to be like oh no actually we don't want a good player when Noah Dobson got traded do you think that Charlottetown traded Noah Dobson without lose approval like, do you think that happened? So I just, I'm, I'm curious how this works, because what if I'm the other team and I say, no, I'm not going to, like, trade away this player. I really like him. They'll literally move, like, they'll tell him. What what leverage does the NHL team have? I mean, they, they don't really have. Uh, so like, what they, they can they do is do they, anything for that it. season. Well, first of all, they'll wreck their relationship with an NHL team and junior teams don't necessarily want to do that because. Either you want to keep the relationships because potentially you could be a scout or you could move up. Like, you just don't want to do that. Yeah, but Second if you're saying all, I have to trade on. away my best player... Hang on. Well, <laughs> a lot of the time that player's in a bad situation, right? So in Kingston this year, Kingston was terrible. They had the first overall pick. They don't... Dallas or whom I think it's Dallas. They don't want Robertson in that situation. And a lot of times, if it's a bad situation, that team is trying to acquire picks and younger players because they're not good this year. So they're, most of the time, on board with this. But what I'm saying is they can't just trade him to anyone. They've got to get approval. Like, the, the NHL team is involved. Whether we like to think they are or not, they are. See, I think it should be similar to the NCAA, where they don't have a say in it, because I don't really see how it, it, it's their right, because they don't own the player. I mean, if you want to call the player up to your NHL team, that's great. But if you're sending him back to junior, isn't it the junior team's property? It just feels like a weird dynamic to me. Yeah, I would say you would get, we're talking about higher-end players, right? So Marner was already in London. Um, they would want, they want their, their players playing in, in good situations. And a lot of the time, the only reason they ask for a move is if it's not in a good situation. And a lot of the times, the reason why teams are willing to oblige is because that team also wants to recoup they're, the younger players and they're looking picks. to rebuild exactly. they want the picks so it's they not really that there's ever an around. argument it's the nhl team's like hey look like we know you're probably looking to rebuild we would we would really like it if you move our players like they have say kind of thing is what i'm getting okay. at they can't go trade him to london i mean they probably could but 
I mean, London gets all the good players anyways, and then all of a sudden this European player who refused to play for every other team in the OHL, but all of a sudden London picks him in the, in the what do you call it, the, the what's the name of the draft for overseas players? The, oh, the import draft. That's what I'm saying. If you, the, yeah, the NHL draft. team... All of a sudden London gets a really good player in the import draft. How does this keep happening? Right, and that's what I'm saying is they can, London will get this player, and it'll be because the player will say, well, I'm not reporting to Sudbury, but I'll report to London. Because at that point, the player has a choice. I can stay in Europe or I can play in Sudbury. So That happened with Adam Boakfist this last year. Should probably leave it at that. All right, we're going to get out of here. We'll, uh, we'll have one more podcast before the draft. And maybe we'll talk about some of the players that potentially are targets to be moved at the draft. I don't know. If you have suggestions, let us know. But we're definitely heading into the offseason here. And talk about all the interesting storylines because god knows like there's enough of them that's for sure there's cory perry there's trades holy moly looking forward to it this cory perry news is something i wasn't expecting but i love it it's great it's awesome fun times ahead hopefully for the raptors too but like i said we're not going to talk about it so let's get out of here (laughs) thank you for listening to the staff and graph podcast you can check out rachel dory's work at the first pass and ian tullick's written work can be found at the athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.